Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle APCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, and as always, I am joined with Sebastian Dennison. Welcome back, everybody. Seb, it's good to hear you, and we are very privileged today uh, to be sitting down with a, a very key individual and a key stakeholder, and most importantly, uh, an amazing partner of PCCA. Uh, that is none other than Ms. Rana Hauser, Senior Vice President of Policy and Pharmacy Affairs of NCPA. Rana, welcome to the Mortar and Pestle. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, even before the podcast, we were chatting about our partnership and how important NCPA serves a role within the independent community pharmacy setting. We've been privileged to uh, sit down and, and meet with your CEO and, and have multiple conversations before the pandemic and then early on in the pandemic in terms of how pharmacies were responding to with the way of life of pharmacy and, and how the difficulties and the challenges and, and what everybody was just trying to achieve early on. It's safe to say that more than a year and a half later, a lot has probably changed and uh, we couldn't think of a better way to, to give more of, a, of an inside glimpse as to what was really going on in the independent community pharmacy world and, and chose none other than NCPA to share a lot of, of really what was happening. So, you know, before we get into those details, um, I mentioned that we, we recorded podcasts specifically with your CEO. Um, would love to learn more about you, your background, and your current role as Senior Vice President of Policy and Pharmacy Affairs. Sure. I've been with NCPA for over 10 years um, in the policy realm. So within our advocacy center, I am responsible for our relationships with all the federal agencies. So one area that I focus on specifically with PCCA, and we have a great working relationship is uh, compounding and implementation of the Drug Quality and Security Act that was passed in 2013 and our relationship with the FDA over the years and uh, continuing that relationship as they formulate policies to implement that law, many of which are still not uh, final yet. So uh, it's been one area that we've been happy to partner with PCCA on over the years. And then as the voice of independent community pharmacy, we represent 21,000 independent pharmacies in the United States. And uh, I think the past year and a half has shown um, you know, has really shown to the public the importance and the value of pharmacy as a go-to resource in their communities for healthcare. And uh, happy to talk with you today about some of the transformations that have happened in practice over the past year and a half. I think that's probably the, the best segue to what I was referring to earlier it really was how did independent community pharmacies navigate the last year and a half? And, you know, what have been some of the biggest takeaways from the organization itself um, and, and assisting the 21,000 members within your community? Yeah, I think our members have been heroic during uh, the COVID pandemic. They have really stepped up and their hard effort and their work has been duly noted, absolutely, especially by Washington, D.C. government officials, is who I uh, mainly interface with and work with. Um, the no notice uh, has not gone unnoticed that community pharmacy is playing a huge role in vaccinating the public. And uh, nearly 120 million vaccinations have been given through the federal retail pharmacy program that's coordinated by the CDC to date. 
Um, the role that our members have played in COVID point of care testing, um, in COVID vaccinations, again, is, is not um, being missed at the federal level. Uh, just this morning, a timely, just this morning, one of the Federal Trade Commission commissioners was at a hearing of the um, House Energy and Commerce Committee and made the comment that um, the heroic actions of independent pharmacies, uh, you know, must be uh, acknowledged and appreciated and the egregious practices of PBMs that we've long fought, um, you know, must be looked into further. So when you have a commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission recognizing the important role that independent pharmacy has played during the COVID pandemic and also recognizing that our future is on shaky ground because of the practices of pharmacy benefit managers uh, really speaks words um, to the, the acknowledgement of the role our members have played. What has been the most interesting takeaway for you as you interface with, you know, government agencies and government bodies um, relating to the administration of the vaccination. I, I think that has been amazing for us. Uh, we had the opportunity to sit down with Mike Johnston from the National Pharmacy Technician Association, and he mentioned the involvement with, with so many different government agencies. So how has that shifted the dialogue for you um, as you probably had a million other things to work on, and then the pandemic was was obviously the most utmost importance. Yeah, I think it's positively shifted the dynamic when it comes to the government's uh, viewpoints uh, surrounding pharmacy as more than a drug uh, dispensing location. Um, there is a, a great acknowledgement. Uh, there has been a great acknowledgement of the role of pharmacy and the important role we've played over the years in vaccinations, especially on the influenza front, but. The pandemic has only grown that acknowledgement and recognition of the important role we can play and, and should play and have expanded opportunities in the future. So the government, I believe, was quick to respond, was quick to listen to us, was quick to understand the independent pharmacy marketplace, allow independent pharmacy partners to uh, be aggregators, uh, so to speak, and uh, aggregate independence so they could participate like a chain would in the CDC federal retail pharmacy program which was very key in making sure that independents who are you know, obviously located in many of these underserved rural areas that the government's trying to reach, making sure independents could be aggregated and participate in the retail pharmacy program. Um, the government was quick to allow independents to uh, you know, work through their Medicare Part B enrollment process and bill Medicare for not only COVID vaccinations, but also for COVID tests for flu point of care tests, for strep point of care tests, and for RSV point of care tests. So we're working hard to make sure that those expanded authorities are maintained over time and uh, don't expire with the end of any public health emergency or don't expire with the end of any amendments that have been made allowing pharmacists to do this. That's actually a really interesting part is that sort of expanded scope uh, piece. And you're kind of seeing this development and, and now I kind of got excited and and of course, I'm going to try and drag it back to compounding, but do you see us getting more scope uh, going forward, kind of utilizing this as a springboard of look what happened during the pandemic, look how effective we are. Um, maybe we could start kind of getting into the world of minor ailments or um, sort of set parameters around the scope. Absolutely. Question, I know. <laughs> no, absolutely. And scope has been an issue that has long been fought at the state level for pharmacy and has not got traction at the federal level as far as Medicare coverage of certain pharmacist services, really beyond vaccines to date. 
But I think with the importance that pharmacists have played with point of care COVID testing, I think that point of care test and treat opportunity is definitely there. I think we have the, uh, you know, we have the recognition by legislators and policymakers that this is an important role pharmacists should play. And expanding those test and treat opportunities is a top priority of NCPA. And uh, clearly expanding scope at a federal level continues to be one of our top priorities. So I guess the next follow-up question to that one pretty easily is going to be, so being on the compounding task force, being part of, you know, having a background in compounding and pharmacy, um, where do you think we're going to have our next forward steps with respect to scope and opportunity? Loaded question, I know. No, that's a great question. I do believe that with the um, PrEP Act amendments, so those were the uh, declarations uh, that the HHS, Health and Human Services Office of General Counsel, had to put those forth to ensure that pharmacists, technicians, and interns could all provide vaccinations and COVID testing. Um, those amendments, those declarations preempt state laws. So those declarations are in effect through 2024. Um, so many of those uh, positive movements that we've seen hopefully will be in place for some time. But you know, it's our job as a national uh, organization representing pharmacists to make sure that there's a formal, you know, uh, pathway forward um, after some of those uh, declarations may expire that would allow us to continue to do these services and continue to be billed through Medicare um, to provide these services. And do you think there's, there's an opportunity with us already now independents working as a group, billing Medicare, do you think that this would be an opportunity to revisit some of our compounding discussions revolving around appropriate uh, billing through, through that system? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think with the recognition of the role pharmacy has played during the pandemic, our, our future and our opportunities are very bright. I think that related to compounding, which is a top priority of NCPA, related to pharmacy benefit manager reform, which is another one of our top priorities, uh, the recognition that's, that's been given to pharmacists and their heroic actions over the past year and a half can only, you know, bring positive light to some of our top uh, priorities that have long been, um, let, let's say we've made strides over the years, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of problems still to solve. And if anything, um, more and more regulators and policymakers are taking note of our problems and taking note of the problems that exist in our profession that are holding us back, such as, again, egregious uh, PBM payment policies. Those apply across the board to compounds and other prescriptions. And I, again, I think it speaks volumes that you have a Federal Trade Commission commissioner this morning uh, recognizing basically the only uh, industries he recognized were restaurants and independent pharmacies. So I think it speaks volumes that uh, federal policymakers, regulators, decision makers that are at very high levels within our federal government are appreciating uh, the role we play and wanting to make sure that we are uh, around and able to survive and thrive to continue playing that important role. You know, to go back to something earlier that you mentioned as well, Rana, um, in terms of rural areas and, and what the impact was like specifically on your organization, knowing that, uh, you know, we've read recent reports that more than 90% of the U.S. population resides within five miles of a pharmacy specifically, um, what were some of the challenge in the rural areas, uh, knowing that a lot of the members of NCPA uh, could be potentially very far from US populations? Yeah, getting into those rural areas and making sure patients in those areas, medically underserved and rural areas are appropriately 
um, tested, treated, vaccinated is a top priority of our government. And, you know, we are always uh, speaking with government officials, letting them know of the reach of our members in those areas. I think something that's gone, um, you know, undetected for a while and is, is more in the recent past being researched is pharmacy deserts. So it's an area that NCPA is putting a lot of focus on. We um, recently have partnered with the University of Southern California, and we'll be announcing uh, more about that partnership soon here. But we're going to be working with them to dig deeper into pharmacy deserts. So not just looking at net pharmacy openings and closures, but looking at areas that are distinct deserts without pharmacy access. Uh, we often hear PBMs say they have it covered, they have adequate network access, uh, we know that's not the point. We know that there's areas where, uh, you know, patients either don't have a mailbox or don't want to rely on a mailbox for their pharmacy care per se, and they need a healthcare provider who's close by to take care of their needs, and they need a pharmacist close by to take care of their medication therapy needs. So that's definitely one area we're going to be working on uh, more in the future is looking uh, deeper into pharmacy deserts and providing policies um, that can help combat pharmacy deserts. So that kind of covers things from a geographic location. Uh, was there anything specific at the independent community level um, within pharmacies that, you know, changed dramatically with it, with access being restricted to pharma, uh, primary care doctors? Uh, we did mention testing earlier on, but how did pharmacies specifically help close that gap? And, you know, how did they adapt and evolve specifically to the needs of the community? Yeah, absolutely. They stepped up like never before and made their sites available for testing and vaccinations. The CDC says that over half of all shots given have been at pharmacies. So it's an incredible number. Um, the CDC had also alerted us a few months ago that some of the large mass vaccination sites that patients were traveling to, um, they found out that they may go to that large vac mass vaccination site for their first shot, but that they didn't return for their second, that they would seek their local independent or community pharmacy for that second shot. So I think it speaks volumes to uh, the public's recognition and reliance on pharmacies and their communities to get these healthcare needs. Again, um, you know, pharmacies have always been a healthcare destination. I think that that's just becoming more uh, recognized by the general public and by uh, policymakers as, as time goes on here. And which again, will help combat some of the problems we see in the uh, pharmacy industry with um, consolidation, with, um, you know, lower reimbursement rates with some of the problems we've been fighting for some time. Uh, I think the recognition, the value of our members uh, is going to help fight those fights moving forward. So you mentioned uh, um, the overall, like just the, the focus on, on, on how everybody stepped up. And the first thing that kind of comes to mind, I'm going to try to choose my words wisely. I don't want to call it a resurgence of independent community pharmacy, but do you envision a tremendous opportunity for things like compounding in terms of shining a light on some of the, the customized medications available at the independent community level and, and what this could mean for future patient care as a result of more engagement with their local pharmacy specifically and, and not resorting to something like a mass vac vaccination site. Yeah, absolutely. I think that physicians are more in tune with where uh, patients prefer to get their therapies I think patients are more in tune with access to care and they want to get access where they want to receive it. I think pharmacies and compounders, especially who provide very personalized medication services are a vital role in their community that, you know, again, is being recognized more and more as time goes on. So I do see opportunities. I do see 
um, inroads being made at the FDA, for instance, with the recognition and the vital role we've played, which will hopefully help pan out over time with some of the um, policy goals we have in front of the FDA right now. Well, I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to all of the pharmacies that are out there that are independent. Um, I cannot tell you how many I've called and they're like, we're doing a clinic right now. I don't have time to talk. Mm. And so they've been on the front lines for literally a year and a half and they've been doing the heavy lifting. And I'm, I'm not the least bit surprised by, by hearing that stat that it might be up to half of all shots given were in pharmacies. Um, but now it's kind of doubling down on that statement, opportunity. Um, they're, they're now in contact. You, and you mentioned about these sort of deserts, uh, sort of a pharmacy vacuum, so to speak. Um, but kind of turning it towards the compounding world, what sort of opportunities do you see independent pharmacies taking? Um, and I know you've got FDA, or I know you've got um, things in front of them, but let's talk future. What are some of the other goals that are starting to populate up that you want to explore? And again, how does this affect the independent market in and engaging and how do we get more people to engage with you at the same time? Because that's part of it is we want people to be aware of your efforts, but also to take an engaged staked interest. Sure. Yeah. And NCPA's role is to represent independent pharmacy absolutely on the Hill in a federal way. We also have a state government affairs department who works very closely with state partners in each state with state pharmacy associations and other partners in the state. So uh, welcome any uh, pharmacist or uh, pharmacy employee, technician, student, intern, et cetera, to come learn more about NCPA and join forces with us and, you know, help fight the fight. Uh, grassroots is more important than ever. And uh, making sure your representatives are hearing from you at both the state and federal level and know your trials and tribulations, know the value that you provide to your community, but then also know what needs to be fixed. Um, they're listening right now. As I mentioned, uh, we have their ear. So now's the time to be making you know, our asks to help our industry survive. Um, I would say on the compounding front, critically what we have in front of FDA right now is an ask to extend the deadline for states to sign the memorandum of understanding. We've asked for a two-year delay to go beyond October, 2021 until October, 2023. Um, there's been some um, other organizations that have asked for a one-year delay. Um, we are hopeful and after being on an FDA listening session a few weeks ago, we had some cautiously optimistic uh, words spoken by some of the FDA staff that they're looking at this um, request and will possibly grant an extension to sign the MOU. So that's one area we are watching very closely and advocating uh, both to the FDA and then uh, to state boards of pharmacy to be very uh, vigilant in the state and pay attention to the MOU situation uh, as it progresses forward. Um, you know, again, a lot of issues are unresolved still from the Drug Quality and Security Act that was passed, um, you know, eight years ago, uh, be 10 years before too long, but um, still working on what bulk, bulk substances pharmacists can or cannot compound with. Um, a few weeks ago, you know, we had a win in front of the Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee where uh, the Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee went against the FDA's recommendation and voted uh, that pharmacists should be able to continue to compound with methylcobalamin. So, you know, we have made strides and inroads over the years and uh, having everyone active and reaching out to their policymakers and legislators um, only helps um, any touch point you can have with them, whether it's an email, a phone call, a face-to-face -face visit, host a pharmacy visit. Um, these efforts really do help and they augment what we're doing in Washington, D.C. And we couldn't do it without you on the front lines. Um, absolutely. 
you know, big takeaway for me, Rana, too, is I want to come back to this, you know, the fact that you head up the compounding task force and work alongside PCCA. Um, maybe we can give our listeners a better understanding of what that partnership truly looks like, because we always talk high level. NCPA and PCC have an amazing relationship, and we're very fortunate to have someone like you and, and Doug Hoey on, on podcast with one another, but there's much more work that goes on behind the scenes. I uh, would love to have your impression and, and also some of the work that is truly aligned with PCCA uh, to give everyone a bit better understanding of our relationship together. Sure. Yeah, NCPA has a number of steering committees. Our president chooses the members of those committees. And uh, I've been the staff liaison to the compounding committee for many years now. So we do have a very strong um, NCPA compounding committee with compounders from all over the, the country who participate in that group. Um, their job is to guide us and to help us formulate our policies and to help us formulate our asks to the Hill and to FDA related to compounding. So We've been very fortunate to have PCCA staff members over the years participate on that committee. AJ Day is a, is a great member uh, at this point in this year's committee who has a lot of uh, really insightful input to offer. Um, you know, one area that we use the compounding committee for is we will get an invite from the FDA to participate in a listening session, for example. And uh, NCPA and other you know, national organizations will get these invites. And then we have to work through our members to determine who's available and who's able to participate in that opportunity, which is a great opportunity to get right in front of the decision makers and tell them what you're, what you're going through and what you're experiencing. So uh, that's one area we use our compounding committee for is to be a public you know, voice, um, public facing uh, voice for compounding pharmacy. We utilize that group to help formulate our comments um, on all issues related to compounding. Uh, we use that group to help us determine uh, who may make public remarks at a pharmacy compounding advisory committee meeting. Uh, we had a big lull in those meetings during COVID and they have picked back up again. I don't believe we have the next meeting scheduled yet, but I assume it should be not in the too distant future here. So we'll be uh, you know, working through our compounding committee to determine if we want to make public remarks and, and who would do that. And um, again, that compounding committee is, is everything to me when it comes to compounding at NCPA, they help guide, they help guide me from a policy standpoint. And um Years ago, we submitted a list to the FDA on substances that our members should be allowed to compound with, and we're still working through that list. So uh, it's been a long process, but a very important process, and I couldn't do it without um, those committee members. Yeah, and you mentioned that win with methylcobalamin specifically, um, and I know that's probably some of the most recent news uh, that has been recently released, and, and, and I know a, a lot of our members are definitely appreciative of that. Um, Maybe t talk us through that process. You know, you mentioned a pretty big takeaway in regards to um, the shift that was made with the task force and obviously the communication with the pharmacy compliance committee. And, you know, how big of a win was that for you uh, on, in regards to the task force and the work that you've been putting in to represent all pharmacies? Sure. And a lot of this is relationship building over the years and making sure you have a voice at the table and making sure you're actively involved in these issues. You know, so for years, we've been advocating that pharmacists should be able to use, uh, you know, certain bulk substances to compound with. And we absolutely do not want, nor could our patients, you know, live without some of these substances. And we do not want the FDA taking away the authority to compound with these. So there have been over years, several uh, wins that we've had on this front and several times when the FDA may have recommended um, to do away with compounding a particular substance. 
and the compounding advisory committee, the people around the table that are making these decisions, some of which are practicing compounders, but many of which are not. Many are academics, many are uh, health system, um, you know, physicians. It, it just runs the gamut who's on that committee from year to year. But you have these voices around a table that are making very important decisions for our industry. And uh, we want to make sure that we're able to best educate and inform that committee as possible. So couldn't have done it without the partnership with PCCA over the years. And the recent methylcobalamin win is a, a, a perfect example of overturning an FDA recommendation. Now, it still has to go through a rulemaking process, so it's not a final done deal yet, but um, all signs are pointing in a, in a more positive direction versus the FDA just saying, no, you can't compound with this anymore. So those are the kind of uh, those are the kind of things that it takes a lot of years work and research and discussions and relationship building um, to come to, uh, you know, positive developments such as that. Well, I'm part of the clinical services team and I kind of have a front row seat to this. But could you, you were talking about these meetings and the, you nominate the substances. Could we discuss that just a little bit more? Because I think some of our listeners may want to understand that process a little bit better. Um, how do, what gets nominated? What is the presentation like? And then the next part to that, um, by extension, is how often do they occur? And then um, how, what is the relationship kind of moving forward? Is it getting stronger? Are we, are we getting um, a better feel for what's occurring? And, and I guess I'm asking sort of some, some more like thought opinion position, certainly not factual when, it, when we're talking about that, like, hey, how are things going? Like, are, are we getting good reception? Are we seeing that sort of changing stance? Or are we still like, man, oh man, this is a tough, tough slog and, and we need more info? Sure. Yeah, no, I think we've seen some positive developments over time, um, you know, presenting in front of the Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee. Um, again, the committee members will change over time. There's, it, it is a formal FDA advisory committee, but there's no set schedule per se. So the last meeting was a few odd weeks ago. The next one I, I don't believe has been scheduled yet. So not a set schedule per se. So we always have to be on the outlook for when one is coming and which substances and which issues will be discussed. But um I think it's taken time. It's taken that relationship building, understanding of who's on the committee, understanding their varied backgrounds and viewpoints, being able to positively, you know, inform um, those compounding advisory committee members. We are lucky that we do have industry representation on that committee. Um, but again, that's a non-voting voice, but it's someone who can sit around the table. I believe our current industry rep is Gus Bassani from PCCA. So it's someone who can sit around the table and, uh, insert their voice and speak, you know, with reason to the value of compounding, which is vital. Um, so we have over time had uh, that industry voice that's non-voting. Uh, that's one way to influence the process. The other way is, again, just to have informed discussions with the other uh, advisory committee members. And then we've learned over time what kind of data um, they're looking for. And this is where I would, would have to give a huge plug to AJ and his work through PCCA in um, you know, standing up before this committee time after time again and uh, giving very polished, very clinical, very um, good presentations that are meant to help uh, inform and you know, change the committee's mind to the extent we can um, if they may have been swaying one direction or the other. So it's definitely been a collaborative effort over time and a lot of people working together to uh, bring about some, some level of success. Like I said, we have a long way to go. The FDA Compounding Advisory Committee is still working on a demonstrably difficult list to compound. Um, you know, there's still there's still a lot of outstanding work to go. So these are these are again issues that uh, will be occurring for many years to come for a law that was 
um, you know, passed in 2013, we're still seeing a lot of work being done to implement it. Uh, it's, it's so interesting to watch it from the clinical perspective um, because I, again, I kind of had the front row seat. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now the demonstrably difficult list, we get a lot of questions about this. And so I'm going to kind of pitch back to you when we're talking about compounding and demonstrably difficult, kind of give a sort of broad definition. And then can you talk about how, where that is leading? Because this is an important piece for people for engagement purposes. It really is. Sure. And I think to date there has been um, some touch points on this list at a few pharmacy compounding advisory committee meetings. The vast work of that committee to date has been on bulk substances that should or should not or can or cannot be used in compounding. So there hasn't been near as much work on that list. Um, we have got some inkling and some insight into what the FDA may be looking for. Um, but again, it hasn't been one of our primary focuses of the recent past here. It is something we'll continue to focus on more and more. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's not on an upcoming agenda item. But again, we don't we don't know that yet. So um, I think it's something we're going to have to be very vigilant about and make sure that uh, the FDA and the committee members are aware of all the technologies that have come to light just in the past you know, few years that have allowed um, greater ability to, uh, to compound uh, certain products that, you know, may not have been um, able to be done. Um, it's, so it's just, it's information, it's education, it's gathering info, informing the committee members, informing the FDA, and really making sure all of our uh, talking points are really on point when it does come time to present in front of that committee again. So, Rana, taking things back to the task force and, and also next steps, um, and maybe this is also a broader point of view or a broader question that also appeals to NCPA as an organization, you know, what are some of the big things, big initiatives that you envision will be within your pipeline for the rest of this year and then into 2022 and beyond? Sure. And again, our job is to influence, you know, legislators in D.C., influence policymakers, work with our partners at the state level to influence positive legislation. Our job is to sue when we need to. There's several outstanding lawsuits that we're involved in, and uh, many of which have gone our way, and, and some of which are still outstanding, and we're, we're looking to see an outcome to. But, um, you know, our, effort, uh, our efforts are to advocate on behalf of our members. So and my role, that's to advocate in front of federal agencies. So I would say right now, focusing on the FDA issue, especially related to compounding, we're also working with FDA staff related to implementation of the drug uh, Supply Chain Security Act, which was passed along with the Compounding Quality Act as part of DQSA. So that's otherwise known as the track and trace law. Uh, working with FDA staff on that front, um, continue to uh, you know forge ahead there. Um, clearly, CMS is a huge agency for our uh, advocacy efforts and advocating in front of the Part D staff, particularly on um, policies that can allow independents to continue serving their patients. Um, we see a lot of egregious PBM practices in the Part D space, such as DIR fees, um, you know, uh, pharmacy quality measures that are unattainable and have nothing to do with quality. Uh, we see problems with steering. We see problems with, um, you know, increased out-of-pocket costs for patients because of PBM tactics. So advocating in front of the Part D team on behalf of our members, advocating in front of the Medicaid team at CMS on behalf of our members, um, doing away with spread pricing, uh, paying pharmacists based on an acquisition cost and a commensurate professional dispensing fee is one of our top priorities. 
uh, clearly getting in front of DEA, having a strong relationship there and making sure that they understand the practice of pharmacy and aren't uh, putting forth harmful policies related to controlled substances. Um, I can't forget to mention TRICARE. I can't forget, believe I'm forgetting that. TRICARE was a huge um, you know, focus of ours in the compounding space a while, a while back now, uh, probably over a year, a, a year or so ago. Um, Express Scripts had come out with a really egregious, out, just outlandish uh, audit for compounders. And um, fortunately, I have a really good relationship with um, the TRICARE pharmacy team and um, the acting colonel. I was able to contact and reach out to and uh, have a really open discussion with him about this audit and uh, just the outrageousness of it. And we were able to talk with um, defense health agency staff that are making these decisions. And we were able to get on a phone call with them and Express Scripts and uh, come to uh, an agreement that this audit should be rescinded. So I think pharmacies, some are still unfortunately working through that, but the good news is that um, uh, TRICARE told Express Scripts to, to take a step back and that what they had done was really uh, incorrect and should not have occurred in the manner it did. So um, having those relationships with those federal agencies is key and it really uh, came to light um, when we needed to stop those abusive ESI compounding audits. I, I I'm from, just from, from in myself. awe of how much you've done. I'm so sorry, Mike, yeah. to step in. I just had no, to say, no, I think we both you. said the exact same thing at the exact same time. <laughs> um, so sorry, Seb, for overstepping as well. The, the biggest takeaway for me over the last three minutes is the sheer amount of initiatives that are, fall within your wheelhouse as well and that are part of the organization. It's truly astounding. Um, we could probably have you back several times to dig in deeper, Rana. So I appreciate you sharing a lot of that information. I think it's important for our listeners because when we think about advocacy, it's easy to turn to the Alliance of Pharmacy Compounding and understand that they have an important position representing compounding pharmacists. I think you may be forgotten by most and the vital role that NCPA plays and, and you're directly related to that. So it's, it's amazing to hear from you firsthand in terms of how you've been able to influence and to work together with industry partners and, and to try to move the dial in a positive manner. And it, amazing takeaway. And, and thank you for sharing all that. You know, knowing that, um, you know, big, big picture, NCPA, obviously every single year has an annual convention that occurs towards the end of the year, uh, normally in the fall. And I might be, hopefully I'm not incorrect by saying that it normally falls within the October month. Um, what do we have coming up this year from an NCPA point of view in a live setting? Absolutely. October 9 through 12 in Charlotte. We would love everyone to be in attendance. It'll be the first in-person live pharmacy meeting in quite a while. So expect to be a lot of fun. I know we have a lot of fun things planned in Charlotte. I heard there's a NASCAR race going on. So if anyone's interested in that, I know that's always could be a possible draw for people who haven't been to one before. But we have a lot of fun activities, great education planned. Uh, fun activities, some pre-conference um, options uh, dealing with testing, COVID, expanding your COVID-related services, or really just expanding your uh, test and treat and your pharmacy-related healthcare services. So a lot of great opportunities. Take a look at our website, take a look at the agenda, and please register to attend. And we hope to see as many of you as possible in early October in Charlotte. Um, maybe I'll let you <laughs> drop the direct website. Uh, just to make sure that you have everyone can definitely find access to the annual convention information. Yeah, absolutely. Go to ncpa.org, and I'm sure once you hit that, there'll be a pop-up for annual convention, but it's ncpa.org backslash annual hyphen convention. 
So wow, we really we really look forward to having uh, people there and really be able to interact. Uh, we're happy we couldn't do what we do without partners like PCCA. Uh, look forward to having you there, you know, exhibiting and meeting with members and, you know, showing them and educating them on your services and offerings. That's the point of our convention is to educate pharmacists and help them further their their business. So excited to see everyone, uh, hopefully here in the next few weeks. Yeah, definitely. And it's so important for us as well, because it is a return to live trade show season. So, you know, uh, I, I believe last year was in a virtual setting, so it would definitely be great to engage and to interact in a live setting again. And we're definitely looking forward to that. But lastly, uh, Rana, we, we just really want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to sitting down with us today, because this was definitely an eye-opening experience. And uh, I, I really hope that all of our listeners out there have a better understanding of the advocacy efforts and to what you serve as well as NCPA. I know it means a lot to the industry. It means a lot to compounding. And thank you for highlighting the partnership uh, between our pharmacists, PCCA, and yourself. Um, I would say it's a secondary triad that also deserves a lot of recognition. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Mike. Yes, it was nice to you. meet y'all. And thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And thank you, Seb, for also joining in. Thank you once again to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this week's episode. As always, to follow us along on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. And to Rana's point, to find out more information about their annual convention, please visit ncpa.org. To obtain more information uh, directly through PCCA, please access our website at pccarx.com. Thank you again for all of our listeners. We look forward to having you back soon. Talk to you later. Bye.